For six years, Jen Budd wore the green uniform of the U.S. Border Patrol. Before joining in 1995, Bud, who grew up in Alabama, says she knew little about the agency. Her harrowing experiences of misogyny, rape, sexual harassment, and with corruption at the agency would ultimately force her to resign. But Bud says leaving the Border Patrol was only the beginning on a long road of reckoning, not only with her years as an agent, but also with a childhood of trauma and abuse. Her new memoir, Against the Wall, My Journey from Border Patrol Agent to Immigrant Rights Activist, takes an unflinching look at a Border Patrol riddled with corruption, racism, and misogyny. Raw and truthful, no one escapes judgment, not even Bud, who searches deep within herself to examine her own prejudices as a white Southerner and the role she played as a Border Patrol agent. Bud's book, which comes out in June, is also about healing from deeply inflicted traumas. After grappling with suicide, she eventually finds love and acceptance with her wife Sandy and becomes an activist for immigrant rights. In this Border Chronicle podcast, Bud talks about her journey from Border Patrol agent to one of the Border Patrol's fiercest critics. Well, first of all, Jen, I want to thank you for uh, coming and speaking to the Border Chronicle. I'm really um, honored to have you on our podcast. Your, your new book is incredibly powerful, very raw, very truthful. It was uh, really a great experience reading it, and it answered a lot of questions for me, I think, that I've had over the years as someone who's written about the Border Patrol for the last two decades. Um, you know, your experiences and, and just your truthfulness and your willingness to go into some very, very difficult areas uh, really helps, I think, give us a broader idea of what's happening in that agency and why we see the same issues over and over and over again. For instance, barely any women, you know, there are very few female agents, uh, very few agents of color who get into supervisory and uh, leadership positions. I mean, that's still the case even today. Um, and so you get into all of that in your in your book. Um, and um, I first of first off, want to ask you. I mean, what what motivated you to to join the Border Patrol in the first place? Well, I mean, like I mentioned in the book, I had just graduated from Auburn University, and um, I graduated top of my class and was expected to go to law school. And, you know, I had grown up in in quite a uh, violent household and had been away to college. And then when I returned in between graduation and the Border Patrol and trying to figure out where I was going to go, I just felt so panicked because I was put back into that alcoholic, you know, violent family. And I just realized I just had to get out of there. And also knowing that I was gay and growing up in Alabama and and this would be 1995 when the Border Patrol offered me the position. And they offered me a position in California. And it was just like, this could be an adventure. You need to do it. Let's take a few years off from school, you know, and go learn the other side of it. Let's learn the enforcement side of the law before, you know, getting a JD or anything else. And so part of it was the adventure. You know, I'm a Southern girl. I like the horse riding. I like the, the things that the Border Patrol portrays themselves to be. Um, and also an escape, an escape from you know, my family and the way that I was raised. So The book's title is Against the Wall. And uh, it kind of has... Uh, when you read the book, you realize it's more than one wall. It's not just about the Border Patrol wall. So it's taken me probably a good three or four years to write it. 
And it, I think, pre-orders start next week, but then the official launch date is uh, June 21st. So you, you talked about coming from a, an abusive uh, childhood and, and, and looking for um, stability. And so you join, you join the Border Patrol, but it, you very quickly found out that uh, you had fallen into another abusive environment, right? To say the least, and maybe you could talk about what, what <laughs> Just... happened to you as a female agent in the agency. And, and we should say, uh, what year was it that you entered? It, it was the end of June 1995. So at that time, the Border Patrol Academy was being held at uh, Glencoe, Georgia, which is Glen County, Georgia. There's a federal law enforcement training center there. Uh, and so that that was basically uh, the campus that the Border Patrol was using back then. They have a variety of different ones throughout the nation. Yeah, I mean, when I joined, you know, in the very first days, they had these things where they would talk to the men alone about us and that we really didn't belong there and how there are different types of women and that uh, they said we couldn't pass the PT exams and the only way we did is if we um, accused our colleagues of sexual assault and then they would allow us to pass, which is not true. That doesn't happen in the Border Patrol. But at the time, I didn't understand it. But what it is is they're grooming the men to have their excuses for when assaults do occur, which is quite frequently in the academy. Um, I was sexually assaulted, raped by a classmate, um, and it was ignored, and I reported it, and they basically told me to file EEO, which means Equal Employment Opportunity Complaint, which is the kind of complaint that you file against a supervisor for sexually harassing you, and this obviously wasn't that. Plus, we were warned by the females ahead of us in the class about the rape gangs that Border Patrol uh, trainees and, and instructors uh, would play on graduation night. And so, it you know, it, part of me, I think at the time being a young woman, I kind of was like, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, it just sounded ridiculous. We're on a federal law enforcement academy, you know, campus and here I am, they're warning me about rape that, you know, and it just, it just seemed ridiculous. And, um, so, you know, at the time I didn't want to believe that the border patrol had this systemic, this cultural, uh, rape culture, uh, problem. But I quickly learned once I got, you know, further out into the station and through different years and watched the different females come up and, they had the same problems and the same issues. And and then you start to learn the system and that EEO itself is a way to cover up uh, sexual assaults within federal agencies. And that's basically, you know, it, it's just trauma after trauma after trauma being a Border Patrol agent. It's not just the, the things that you're doing as an agent and the things that you're seeing as an agent and how the policies you know, uh, create these environments that are very abusive and oppressive. Um, it, it's also that you're personally going through it for whatever reason, if they think you're gay or if, you know, you won't put out for the guys, you know, on your team and stuff. And um, it was highly traumatic and I denied it for a long time and and tried to suck it up and tough it out and hack it, as they say in the Border Patrol. And um, I was kind of used to it. So I thought I was going to end up retiring a Border Patrol agent. And they actually had you working alongside your rapist, right? The the person who had raped you. Uh... In the academy right after I was raped. Yeah, mm -hmm. they made me fight him in uh, in hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat. Um and he basically beat me up again, and the instructors all knew, and they laughed about it. And um, they were trying to teach me a lesson. They tried to fire me on my uh, physical fitness tests, but I passed them. And then they tried to fire me on my Spanish boards, 
because I said I complained about being sexually assaulted, but I managed to make it through that. So it was always, you know, one thing after another. So it's not like you can just get past a rape and go out and prove that you're a good agent, which is what I was trying to do. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, prove yourself. It's, it stays with you the whole time. You know, it gets brought back up when they're mad at you or when they're angry that you don't want to do a detail that they want to make you do and that kind of thing. And so whenever the management at my station, which was Campo Station, it's um, in the mountains, the high desert mountains of East County of San Diego. You know, whenever they were mad at me for something, when I came out as a lesbian, they would bring him to the station to do overtime on, on my shift. And so I would have to, I would just... It, you know, it's 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 interesting. I, I was just doing the edits and I'm reading that part again. And it's like, here I am, this is a big, bad Border Patrol agent with a gun and all this other stuff. And I come in to muster for the shift and there he is. And it's just like, are you kidding me? And it just takes you back down to that moment when you couldn't stop the the violence and you couldn't protect yourself. And it just especially as an agent, it just makes you feel very weak and vulnerable. And and so I would just turn right around and claim sick leave and walk out and leave. So. And, and how long were you uh, an agent for, for how many years? I was agent for six years. And throughout that time in the book, I mean, you, you write about a lot of instances where you were, you know, abused or discriminated by other agents. I guess there was one instance where an agent ran you over, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. basically. How how did you keep your morale up? How did you keep going for six years? And why didn't you leave earlier? Um, I think, you know, a lot of it had to do with the way I was raised. For me, uh, abuse, whether it's, uh, emotional or verbal or physical, I was raised with that. And that to me for a long time was what love was. That's what family was. And as we say in the border patrol, we bleed green and the border patrol was my family. And there are a lot of really good agents in the border patrol. And there are a lot of really bad agents in the border patrol and the worst thing about the Border Patrol is that the management covers up for those bad agents instead of dealing with those agents because they're more concerned about the overall reputation and appearance of the Border Patrol. I think I just was used to always being alone, and certainly in Campo, you you work alone. I rarely ever got back up, and I had some friends at Campo, and I had some, you know, supervisors that realized that I was a good agent and all this stuff was nonsense and everything. And, and you know, it's not just me. It's not just this one, just agent, Jim Bud's having a problem. All the, all the women go through this at some level. And the weak men go through this or the men that they think are gay. Um, but... I think I just felt it was normal and I and and for me the way I got through trauma as a child was I just put it I had like this psychologist my psychiatrist would call it a disassociation and but in my head it's visualized as like a wall and when bad things happen rape being beaten by your mom or being run over by an agent or whatever the case is I had this ability to go elsewhere in my mind. I had this ability to push it over this wall and not think about it and move on and just move on. And eventually in the book, it catches up to me. Um, and so that's how I survived for the longest time was just just putting it behind me and trying to ignore it and just trying to keep pushed through it. Yeah, so... It's very powerful and very raw when you talk about finally leaving the agency and then coming to terms with that that wall that you had built to protect yourself, uh, which 
ultimately leads to a suicide attempt and then uh, being placed in a psych ward, right? Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, there's a very high incident rate of suicides among Border Patrol agents. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's something called moral injury, right? About mm -hmm. witnessing things and and this sort of trauma that you're 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 taking in from seeing all these terrible things happen around you that accumulate over time. Um, could you talk about that a little bit and how? Uh, I mean, ultimately, you you come out on the other side, you know, in 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 a good place. So ultimately, it's a triumphant story. But um, maybe you could talk about you know, these kinds of things that agents face and then on top of the trauma that you grew up with. It's gotten even more militaristic than, than I was in. I mean, I talk to agents all the time and they talk about that they're uh, training officers at the academy and, and, and once they get to their stations, it's, you know, about their uh, training agents punching them in the face and and smacking them around and, and, and all this other stuff. So I think the training itself being that it's somewhat militaristic and, 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 you know, that, that can be difficult, but you expect that when you go into a paramilitary organization. So that's not so, so bad, but I think something that the border patrol refuses to recognize is that deterrence policies, you know, not only have they killed tens of thousands of migrants and, and caused a lot of trauma to migrants who do survive, but those same policies in turn do the same thing to the agents who are enforcing it. And the agents don't want to admit it because it makes them feel weak. The Border Patrol doesn't want to admit it because then they'd have to admit that their policies are causing, you know, mental anguish to their own agents. And it's one of the reasons why you never hear the union talk about it. Um, they just consider you to be weak. They strip you of your gun. They ultimately end up telling you to leave so you lose your job. There's no possible way to ever come forward and say, I'm having problems because I've just had to recover five bodies. And you can't do it in the Border Patrol. And I think the other thing that causes the serious moral injury in Border Patrol agents is that as you're processing people and as you're, as you're you know, going about your daily activities, at some point as an agent, you realize the vast majority of people who are apprehended by border patrol agents are not criminals. And even of the group that you can say this percentage, small percentage are criminals, the vast majority of those people are not violent criminals. And the, and the feeling is, does anybody really deserve to die for crossing this, this border and trying to seek a better life? And I think for some agents, they can ignore that. You know, some agents end up going into being a firearms instructor at the academy and they do 10 years doing that and they don't see any of it. But for the agents who are on the line, who are stripping uh, parents from, you know, taking their parents from their children and that whole thing, you know, last year, I believe, was the highest year for Border Patrol suicides. The agents are telling me the, the agency won't release the official statistics. And that's after four years of the brutality that Trump brought in, which was the most brutal policies that, we, that we've ever seen, at least in our lifetime on the border. And I think that's a direct result of that. Um, for, former agent Francisco Cantu and I talk about that a lot. And I think for certainly for the agents who have uh, Latino heritage and can somewhat identify um, and see themselves or their family members in a lot of the people that they apprehend, the trauma has to be just even greater for some of them. 
So, but that's considered to be a weakness and, and, and there's no way to handle that. There's no way to deal with that in the border patrol. And so it ends up being in, in huge suicide numbers. That's what happens. Do you have any advice for agents in the agency right now who are dealing with that type of trauma or really struggling emotionally with it? I think, you know, the number one thing I think for the agency is that they actually need to bring in mental health care uh, professionals who aren't going to try and cover up the situation. They need to admit it and deal with it head on. I mean, deterrence policies don't work anyhow, so I don't know <laughs> I don't know what good it serves other than to make some people rich but and and get politicians elected but um and then for the agents, I always tell them I say, you know you guys need to group together and you need to say, we've had so many agents at this station or so many agents at this sector die this year, and we're not gonna put up with it anymore, and we demand that the unions take care of us. That's what we pay you to do. And we demand that we have better policies. So they, you know, that's, they're not willing to do that because as soon as they start doing that, they start getting targeted. I mean, they have uh, employee programs and they're always like, you know, tell somebody if you're having trouble and this and that. But what the agents see is when they do say that they're having trouble, when I just had an agent contact me a couple of weeks ago, an agent was saying, you know, I'm just, I'm struggling. I'm having problems with depression. And, and, you know, they didn't say why it was, if they thought it was from the job or maybe something else. And immediately they just told him to turn in his gun and leave. They fired him. But are you already regularly in contact with agents? Yeah, I'm regularly in contact with agents, uh, current and former. A lot of the former ones contact me and thank me for speaking up and they talk about how embarrassed and disgusted they are with what the border patrols become. It's considered, I mean, not that the border patrol was ever nice or not brutal or not racist. It's always been that way, but certainly after nine 11, it became more organized. So, you know, and, and then certainly with, you know, uh, these critical incident teams and stuff, they, they, they cover up everything. The agents see that, you know, the good agents who don't want these bad agents in there, they see it. They see the cover-ups and 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 that just eats away at them as well. I think I talk about that I talk about that somewhat in the book is is it just gets to be like what am I doing here? This is this is like, you know, we're oppressing people and yet at the same time we feel oppressed and nobody will listen to us and you know, and and so it gets into this big giant ball and the only way to succeed in the border patrol is to give in and become part of that brutal system that keeps oppressing and keeps agents killing themselves and stuff but it's it's just a horrible cycle it really is and so you became an agent in the late 90s and did you leave before 9-11 or were you there I left right before 9-11 I left in June of 2001. And so, I mean, they, they talk about the old patrol is prior to 9-11, and then the new patrol is considered to be after 9-11. So the new patrol doesn't do as much of the hiking and as much of, because they have special teams now, whereas the old patrol that I was in, you physically had to do everything. And I kind of feel like that's where the agency has lost any kind of empathy or sympathy that the agents might have had, I think they've they've lost a lot of that because most agents aren't out there on foot chasing migrants. Um, most agents aren't walking behind the migrants through the horrible desert terrain and feeling, you know, the the physical effects and the emotional effects of what goes through when you think you're going to run out of water and all this other stuff and realizing what somebody's willing to do and how bad their life must be to put themselves through that. So I think if, you know, the few agents that that do have that experience tend to be the agents that are kinder and and, and don't take everything, you know, as, as literal as, as what, like, the union pushes out, that everybody's criminals and all this other stuff, so. And... Um... Before you left, um, you were working in intelligence, and you you, you talk about um, 
you know, they're surveilling cell phones. Uh, and then you talk about the critical incident teams and you're starting to notice a lot of corruption and how, how that works within the agency. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping you can talk about that and about the critical incident teams, which have just been disbanded, right? Uh, th right. Thanks to a lot of the uh, lobbying that you did to get that out there in the open and to uh, expose it. Yeah, I mean, the critical incident team, so for your listeners, the Border Patrol does not have the right to investigate itself. It does not have the right to investigate anything outside of immigration, customs, or narcotics. And so when a use of force incident happens, like a shooting, a death, a beating, a rape, something like that, it requires that, that an outside agency with that, with that approval, that authority to investigate, does the investigation. And what happened in the Border Patrol in the late 80s and the early, early 90s was that individual chiefs began setting up their own investigative units. So this wasn't brought down from Washington, D.C. Was, this was done by individual chiefs, and it was secret. It was so secret that I know Border Patrol agents with over 20 years in that have never heard of it because they did more uh, desk work or they did more like, you know, academy work and they weren't in the field as much. They weren't involved in shootings and things like that. But if you're involved in any kind of response to shootings or beatings or whatever, then you know what these teams are. And we used to call them the cover-up cover incident teams. And for short, we call them SITs, C-I-T. They have different acronyms depending on which sector they're, on, they're in. But basically, it's Border Patrol agents um, identifying and being on the scene before they call in the actual investigators so that they get everything exactly the way they want it, and then they'll call in the investigators. And what's, what it's turned into over the years, over the 35 years now, is especially in the sector that, that has the heaviest amount of, of set interference is Tucson sector. And they, the, the investigative agencies over there, the local sheriffs, the, the local PD, and even the FBI and OPR, have just basically ceded the job of identifying what is evidence and the collection of that evidence to the set team in Tucson. And they do that elsewhere. So that means that Border Patrol agents are... They kill somebody, and then their fellow Border Patrol agents come in, and they control the scene, and they decide what is evidence and what isn't, and they collect what is evidence to them that pushes the point that they want, that it's a good shooting. And then they collect it poorly, and they violate the chain of custody so poorly because they don't have good training. So even if the case does get to criminal trial, like the Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez is a good example... Once it gets to trial, the juries end up getting hung because the evidence was gathered so poorly. So how could you ever convict anybody on it? So it, it's it's a slam dunk. And they don't only use it for use of force. They're using them for traffic accidents. When CBP got involved, once Border Patrol got under CBP after 9-11, CBP has actually been hiding the training that they've been giving to Border Patrol set teams through their laboratory science services. So instead of seeing, you know, in the procurement logs, instead of seeing it being delivered straight to Border Patrol for set team training, they're hiding like vehicle reconstruction training is listed under CBP, Laboratory Science Services, LSS. And then if you get into the docs, you see it's only for Border Patrol set teams. And that's completely illegal. So you could just be driving down the street, Border Patrol agent, for whatever reason, not paying attention. And I'm not saying it's not like it's not like a pursuit or anything. It's just average everyday driving. Get into a minor fender bender with them. You have a little accident, hurt your neck, whatever. They sick the set team on these people. So it doesn't just affect migrants. It's affecting U.S. citizens. Um, and then and then they, you know, they try and use it so that they don't have to to give you as much money for the damage that the Border Patrol caused to you in this wreck. 
They have no legal authority, none whatsoever. So everything that they touch, everything that they've been a part of is, is corrupted, every single bit of it. So we've got 35 years of cases and they're still, you know, they're not going to be gone fully until the start of the fiscal year, which is October. So they're still allowing them to conduct these investigations until then. But, I mean, I don't know what we're going to do other than just keep pushing them to come forward about it, you know. But I think it's significant that CBP just rolled over after six months after uh, the Southern Border Community Coalition filed their complaint outing these set teams. At first they said, no, we don't know anything about them. And then they said, oh, they provide a vital service. And then, <laughs> and then they're like, no, they're going to stay. They're gonna, we're going to get them better training. And then finally, you know, the commissioner, Magnus, just rolls over and says, okay, we'll get rid of them. There's a lot there. There's a reason why the Border Patrol and CBP finally just said, okay, nothing to see here. We'll get rid of them. And did a uh, lot. congressional members get involved also in pressuring them? Yeah, actually, there's 10 committees involved, but the two major committees are Homeland Security, HISGAC, I think is what they call it, and then um, uh, Oversight. So the House Oversight Committee is also involved in it. So I anticipated that once CBP uh, rolled over and said, okay, we'll get rid of them. I had anticipated they would be like, okay, nothing to see here and move on, but they're not. They still want hearings and they want to know what happened in the past. So hopefully we'll be able to get these set reports that nobody knew they even existed. Nobody could, could then, you know, when you go to court, you can't confront the people who are collecting the evidence because you don't know they were collecting the evidence. You know, you read old reports, old news reports, and it'll say like San Diego County Sheriff's is investigating or Tucson PD's investigating. But it never told you that there's this secret border patrol team that's the one that's actually picking and choosing which evidence to take and how to collect it. And oh, we might collect this piece of evidence really poorly. <laughs> and then it won't become evidence in a trial. And and so um it, it's just, it's amazing. It's the biggest secret shadow police, you know, uh, cover-up that I think this country has ever seen. And I, I think right now, at least the national news media hasn't caught on to it. It's really a big deal. It's really a big deal down here on the border, for sure. I wanted to ask you, after you, after you left Border Patrol, you eventually became an activist and a, and a fierce critic of the agency. How did that come about? How did you, how did you become an activist? So when I left in June of 2001, I basically, at the time I was dating my wife, um, and she owned a custom cabinet shop and I went to work for her for many years. And I just kind of I kind of tried to put it over my mental wall and just move on. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to think about it. And when I did, you know, it was just all very confusing and I had a lot of anger about it. And um, eventually it all ca caught up to me with a massive suicide attempt in February of 2015. And it kind of, you know, my suicide attempt left me disabled with my hands and so I couldn't do a lot of things myself and and I had to rely on my wife and I had to rely on people around me and the circumstances of my life changed a lot for me and I started thinking about what I could do to really change things in my life and one of the things that I realized was that the Border Patrol had been very traumatic on my life. And it wasn't just about being raped. It was everything else, you know, the the bodies and the wall and the frustration and, and, and so forth and the corruption and everything. And at the same time, Donald Trump announced he was running for president. And so I started talking more in therapy and stuff about the agency and as time progressed, 
um, and I started getting healthier and started getting better and realizing uh, that I had PTSD and I and and you know my symptoms and stuff and why uh, they were connected to my time as an agent and so forth. And then I just started, you know, I started seeing the lies coming out of the Border Patrol's mouth about, you know, when they were supporting Donald Trump and all of a sudden they changed from a wall is a stupid idea to we really, really need a wall. I mean, no agent before Donald Trump would have said the wall stops anything because it doesn't. And it was just very blatant. And, you know, as a woman from the South, uh, grew up in the 70s and 80s over there, and then everything I'd seen in the patrol, it was like, it just felt like the Border Patrol was finding their virulently racist leader that they've always been looking for that would put his arm around them and believe everything they said. And I just thought, you know, I, I have to say something. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't say something for for so long and I hit out because I could and and I suppose that's part of it's part of my culture and part of my race. Um you know, I don't get stopped by the border patrol when I go through their checkpoints. I barely get stopped at the ports of entry, although I do a little bit more now cuz they know who I am. But um I just felt like, you know, the the same things that I got into the Border Patrol for, that I studied law for, justice, um, what is right, ethics, morals, and stuff, were the same things that made me start talking about it and then made me start writing about it. And it was, the I think, the writing about it and then getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it um, every time I wrote about it was 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 the main thing that was the biggest thing the writing the book over and over and you've written books before so you know that it goes through many many renditions and and you just keep pulling back layer after layer after layer until it's just so raw and so real and then it all makes sense and I just felt like not that my story is every agent's story, but that a lot of agents would see themselves in my story. And I think a lot of Americans would see themselves uh, in my story. So I just started talking and I never stopped in writing. So so writing the book for you was really about healing from your past and, and, and coming to terms with it and, and sort of figuring out what had happened it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, because I think when I first started writing the book mm, three or four years ago, you know, I'm thinking about all these great stories I could tell about the Border Patrol, some humorous, some scary, and this and that. And then, it, you know, you start to realize that it's not just about these great stories that would look great on, you know, TV or in thinking about them and they're exciting and this and that, it has to have a purpose. It has to, you know, what am I trying to get at? What is the point of, of the book? And the more that I realized, I, you could just see it in your writing. You can see it because you're reading back your own words and you, and, and you see it and you can just see like, I'm talking about what's on the top. I need to get down to the bottom. Why am I doing this? Why does this hurt so much why does this sit in my brain over and over and over again it's because it's traumatic why is it traumatic and so it it causes it caused me to dig really deep and look at myself and a lot of things that I wasn't proud of that I had to admit to you know um I can't just sit here and call out other agents who are wearing the uniform today without looking at my own actions at the same time. I mean, there's there's parts of what the agency does today and in talking to agents today that I completely identify with. I get it. Your writing is un, unflinching, basically. You really lay everything bare. It's It's very, very brave. And so 
I guess you're saying it took you quite a few years to get to where you're at now with the book and where you feel like you're ready for it to come out. Um, and how are you preparing for the book coming out? What do you expect will happen when you when you publish it? <laughs> I mean, in my mind, this is probably the most unflinching and critical book written by a former agent that I've seen. I could be wrong. Maybe you've seen others, but but this is no, I've, I've never, never seen, seen a border seen patrol anything. book like this. I think that I think most border patrol books are about the swagger and you know the, the uh you know how you feel in the uniform and 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 what that means and look how bad I am and I caught these drug smugglers and blah 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 but yeah I don't think most books talk about what you're doing and and, and how what you're enforcing and how it contributes to the death of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like the deterrence policies themselves, you know, it's just kind of like, well, don't cross, <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's just so on the surface and it, it doesn't address anything. It, it just is like, this is the way it is and and just deal with it. And I think, I don't know what the response is going to be. And, and I mean, it's, I've never written a book before. I don't know what to expect. And I, I don't know if people are going to like it, if people are going to shun it because it is so raw. Um, but I felt like this was my one chance to say the truth as it is 100% you know, say all the things that, that I did as an agent and how I feel about them and what it has done to others and what it feels like to recognize that and go through it. I mean, I totally anticipate, you know, the Border Patrol Union is going to probably get every Border Patrol agent they can to write a bad review on Amazon or something, I'm sure. But, you know, <laughs> you can't stop that. And I try not to think about it, I guess. I try try and just go day by day because if I think about it too much, it, I think it kind of overwhelms me. And, you know, it's, it, it's scary to put yourself out there. It's scary to talk about your suicide attempt. It's scary to talk about your rape and, 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 and to do it in the way that I did it. But I felt like if I'm going to do this, then I'm really going to, I'm going to really have to do it. And I want to make sure that I say the truth and and what happened to me and what still happens to other female agents and especially uh, black agents as well because there's so few black agents in the organization. And I think there has to be a voice that speaks to the truth as opposed to what the Border Patrol and the Border Patrol Union puts out because so much of what those guys put out is just outright lies. It's just, it's just outright lies. They're just outright lying. And, and all the same issues that you talk about that you experienced in the nineties, you know, from, um, sexism, racism, uh, you know, the rape culture, all of that. I mean, all of that continues right in the agency. The agency hasn't evolved at all. No, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I describe it as, cause so people think a lot of times they, when they think about when I was an agent, they don't put together chronologically that I left right before 9-11. So I knew the agency just as it was going to change into being under CBP and under Department of Homeland Security. And so a lot of people and even agents, the agency has sent agents to me on social media and said, oh, the, the new patrol is different. It's not like that. That's the old patrol. What you have to understand is the old patrol at the time that I was an agent, right before 9-11, it was very, very old school, Western shoot 'em up type of law enforcement agency. And they took a lot of pride in that. 
They took a lot of pride in their sexism. They took a lot of pride in the misogyny and the rape culture. They took a lot of pride in keeping uh, black agents out. They took a lot of pride in keeping the Latino agents out of management. And then all of a sudden, they go from an agency of like, I think about that time, around 10,000 agents, and they're doubled. And they're getting, you know, like, I think when I started, we got less than a billion a year in resources and border patrol as far as funding. And then all of a sudden now it's just billions and billions and billions of dollars. So you have an agency that is backwards and rough them up, shoot them, all this other stuff. And they get away with tons of stuff. Nobody pays attention to them. They barely have any legal training. They certainly don't have any ethics or moral training. They have absolutely no training in humanitarian causes or anything like that. They barely even know what reasonable suspicion is or probable cause. And then you give them more power with less oversight and with tons and tons and tons of money and tons and tons and tons uh, of firepower and toys. And this is what you get. You get an agency that's out of control. Tucson sector right now has three high-ranking agents on trial for rape that we know of. You know, we're talking about an assistant chief who the Border Patrol would like to say he doesn't represent the Border Patrol, but let's be honest, he's been in the Border Patrol for 20 years. He's an assistant chief. He raped a female agent, junior agent, kidnapped her and raped her. He's married to the chief of the El Paso sector, Gloria Chavez. You know, that is the culture of the Border Patrol. Uh, you know, when the I'm 1015 Facebook group came out and everyone was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly who they are. That is exactly what they are. And that hasn't changed. You, you've given them the the tools, the money, the resources, the manpower, but you haven't done anything to change their culture. You haven't done anything to address the corruption. So that just increases with everything else, you know. So what are some meaningful changes that reforms that could happen to to fix the agency? Um, you worked on the critical incident teams and getting getting rid of those. What are some other important reforms that could be done? I mean, off the top of my head, the Border Patrol Union is illegal right now because before Donald Trump left the presidency, he um, made them a security agency. And a security agency cannot, by law, have a bargaining unit. And it, because when you're a security agency, you have less oversight. And you so there's, there's not as much uh, checks and balances, so to speak. And so when you have less oversight, you have to then not have a bargaining unit, like a union, because that union can have national security information and use it against the United States, which is kind of like what the union's doing right now. Because they 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 know all this top secret national security stuff and they're throwing it out there and using it against the Biden administration. So that's one thing. Get rid of the union. And that's under five USC seven one one two that it that could be done tomorrow. It could be done right now in a minute if the president didn't wasn't so afraid of looking tough on uh, unions and he should do it um, because no other agency that it has this national security de designation is allowed to exist like the Border Patrol is doing right now. The other thing I would do is the ridiculous uh, amount of, of uh, EEO cases that the Border Patrol funnels. And bless you. And Chief Scott actually told me uh, in person uh, uh, with my attorney present and, and, and other women present that they are still doing this. They use the EEO system to hide uh, sexual assaults on uh, female agents and even some male agents. It's time to open those up, even if they wanted to redact the names or something like that, or at least just let somebody with the academic uh, credentials go in and look at it and do a study. We should know about that. 
Um, you need to stop hiding uh, all the domestic violence and sexual assaults that are going on from Border Patrol agents with their families and their spouses. They do a really good job of that. They need to open up all these uh, set team reports so that everybody can see them and see what was done in those cases. If the United States Border Patrol was, say, like the St. Louis Police Department and they were shooting this many people and beating this many people and had this many complaints and the rape culture and stuff, the United States government would go in and take over that police station and say, there's obviously a problem here. We need to do something about it. So they need to do something about it with the Border Patrol. Um, the answer isn't just to give it to CBP, Office of Professional Responsibility, or DHS, Office of Inspector General, because both Border Patrol and CBP funnel their agents into those oversight organizations. So they have their own agents acting as investigators into these supposed oversight organizations. So I think the biggest thing would be to create uh, a bureau, a federal uh Bureau of Investigations, an FBI task force that does all the investigations, at least into deaths and custody and, and, and stuff, and takes it totally away from OPR um, and, and OIG because they've shown that they, I mean, they've known that these illegal set teams have been operating for 35 years. And I think that's what disgusts me the most about the set teams is that it's not just that the Border Patrol did this and they've been getting away with it. It's that all of the agencies that supposedly act as oversight to the Border Patrol allowed them to do it and they have never said anything. And the judges sit there and allow these agents to testify as if, you know, they're somehow experts and actually trained evidence technicians. So it's not just about the Border Patrol. There has to be some serious reconciliation that goes on with what the agency uh, has been doing. But, I, you know, there's a lot of things I could go on and on. I think the checkpoints are illegal. I've always thought they were illegal, even as I was an agent standing on a checkpoint. I believe they violate the Fourth Amendment. I think they need to do away with the ridiculous physical fitness qualifications. Um, that's the way they keep most of the women out, you know. Um, so, I mean, there there's a lot of things that they can do, but they only do just enough to make it seem like they're doing something. And then, the, you know, and, and everything just stays the same. So thank you, Jen Bud, so much for being on the Border Chronicle podcast and really looking forward to seeing your book Against the Wall coming out in June. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with us. Thank you. Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview is edited by me, Brenna Maitre-Nalara. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps others find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.